Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Welcome to a special edition of Words Matter, live from Politicon in Nashville, Tennessee. Today we are joined by the 68th governor of Massachusetts from 1991 to 1997. He got his career start with the House Judiciary Committee, uh, working as a staff attorney uh, during Watergate. And then he became the U.S. Attorney for the District of Massachusetts, later on becoming the Assistant Attorney General, Head of the Criminal Division at Maine Justice from 1986 to 1988 under President Ronald Reagan. In 2016, he was the Libertarian candidate for Vice President. And on April 15th of this year, he announced that he would be challenging President Donald Trump for the 2020 Republican presidential nomination. Governor Weld, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you so much, it's an honor to be here, and thank you all for coming. Governor, I'm gonna start uh, the Inquisition. Um, the president, uh, depending on whose numbers you believe, is anywhere between 80% to his 95% with Republicans. Uh, Republican state committees are looking to cancel caucuses and primaries. Um, so. What really is driving you to get into this race now? Well, first of all, the Republican state committees are all wholly owned subsidiaries of the Trump Organization and the Republican National Committee. So he's at 100% with those folks because he appointed all of them. Uh, my strategy broadly described would be to increase uh, the electorate, to expand the electorate that's going to vote in the Republican primary by greatly uh, uh, expanding the number of millennials, Gen Xers, younger voters, women, you know, after some of the reproductive rights atrocities of the recent months. Uh, I'm not saying suburban women, moderate women, I'm saying all, all women. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've been spending a reasonable amount of time in New Hampshire. One of the uh, strategic uh, objectives is to do very well in that primary. And I do record here that uh, I moved 28 points on President Trump in New Hampshire in the last month in the month of September. He went down 17, I went up 11. Give me two more of those and I'm leading. <laughs> so I, I wanna, uh, since you've had the benefit of it being out on the trail, talking to rank and file Republicans and to voters in general, I think there's a, uh, there's a caricature of the Trump voter as you know, Hillary Clinton uh, called deplorable. Uh, when you watch these rallies on uh, cable TV, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of ugliness you see there. Um, my guess is that's not what you're seeing. And give me a sense of, you know, what, the, what is the attraction to Trump and what are, you know, how are Republicans uh, feeling about him and, and how are they feeling about being uh, portrayed this way? Yeah, no, I don't see any ugliness uh, out there. Maybe the odd uh, sorehead usually who's had a few pops uh, along the way, but not, not much at all. Uh, I do go into a lot of diners in New Hampshire, which is an art form in New Hampshire, and I'll shake 200 hands in three diners. They're very popular and populous. And I'll meet maybe four, six Trump voters. Uh, then some of the street fairs, there are more Trump voters, depending on what county you're in. Uh, but still, it would be a one in 10 ratio. Uh, and a lot of them want to engage me, say, why are you doing this? And they're perfectly friendly and perfectly intelligent. They want to talk, and believe me when I tell you, I want to talk to them too. Uh, and then there's uh, a few who uh, just brush past and say, why would you want to do a thing like that? Uh, have you looked at the stock market lately or so something like that? But that's not a numerous group. And are those people, are, do they, are they concerned that they're being portrayed this way? You know, as, as, as Trump voters, as you know, angry, grievance-laden people? Well, they haven't said that to me. Um, you know, I, I think the great majority of Trump voters are well-intentioned people who either didn't want to vote for Hillary Clinton or, like me, they found the promise to drain the swamp a pretty peppy motto. I kind of like that. And in the early debates, when there were 12 people up, in sta uh, up on stage, Republican primary in 16, I can remember standing up, 
when Trump gave, I thought, the third best answer in a row, saying, wait a minute, this guy, because he's a joke in New York City, where I lived from 2000 to 2009, he's a joke, most dishonest real estate guy in New York City. I said, that, he's the best candidate up there. That's me talking in uh, early of 2016. So it happens in the best of families. And his appeal is not, uh, you know, it's not really hard to see. He had some catchy slogans. I happen to think they're, uh, they're dog whistles. You know, his, uh, his salient on immigration, I thought from the get-go was disgraceful. Those people don't all want to be citizens. It's a complete uh, straw man. Uh, but, uh, you know, he had a lot of energy. He does like to entertain. Uh, I'm familiar with that. I was five years in Gilbert and Sullivan, three years in Hasty Pudding Theatricals. I've spent as much time on stage as he has. So if I ever get him in a, on a stage, uh, I'll give as good as I get. But those Trump voters are fine. You mentioned reproductive rights atrocities, and don't you worry, I have several questions for you on that. But I want to roll back to the beginning, actually, uh, because I think your your start in politics and, and on the Hill is very relevant to now. You, As we mentioned, you started on House Judiciary during Watergate. Uh, and the impeachment hearings for President Richard Nixon. And your colleague at the time was a, long, a young lawyer by the name of Hillary Rodham. But I want to ask you how that experience shaped the way you think about presidential power and conduct and impeachment. Well, the Nixon impeachment investigation, and Hillary Rodham and I actually even had an office together and worked together on the memorandum, the final memorandum of what constitutes grounds for impeachment and removal of a president. And so it's a crash course in constitutional law uh, with specific reference to that issue. So we read, you know, Ferran's debates on the adoption of the Constitution, all four volumes, six times. I read the transcript of every impeachment trial uh, in history, yada, yada, yada. There's almost no court cases because it's a political remedy. It's not a criminal code right. remedy. So the first, first day we got there, we were the first two people hired. And John Doerr said to us, it was a Friday, said, Bill, Hillary, has a certain resonance. Got a ring. Um, little did we know. But he said, uh, it's Friday. Why don't you have a uh, memo on my desk on Tuesday about what's grounds for removal of a president? And you know, 40 days later, after 30 lawyers had gone blind trying to find the answer in the Library of Congress, we said, huh. You know, what Jerry Ford said about uh, an impeachable offense is what a majority of the House and two-thirds of the Senate say it is. That's a terse but profound definition. However, we, we did glean certain things from the constitutional history. And chief among those is the thing that the framers were most worried about was foreign interference in U.S. affairs and corruption of office, by which I mean use of the president's public office for private or personal advantage or gain. Those are the two things they were most worried about, and they did not include that removal clause as an afterthought. That constitution needed nine colonies to ratify it for it to take effect. And there were a lot of anti-federalists. I'm such a libertarian, anti-government, pro-individual liberties. I would have been an anti-federalist. And if that removal clause weren't in there, they weren't about to ratify that constitution because they were not accustomed to having any executive at all. The Articles of Confederation, which governed the colonies from 1774 to 1787, had no executive. That's why it was so weak and why it had to be replaced. I also want to ask you, you're a bit of an expert on public corruption. Uh, the governor, when he was a prosecutor, prosecuted 111 public corruption cases and won 109 of them. So I wanted to ask you, what made you focus on that particular crime? Why was that so important to you as a prosecutor? Well, I had just become U.S. attorney in Massachusetts, and the Democrats have been in power for 50 years. And they developed a view that, you know, what, what went on in Boston uh, stayed in Boston. And there had not been a lot of nosy federal prosecutors. And by the way, I'm not taking a swipe at the Democrats. If any party is in power for 50 years, they're going to get awfully used to exercising power, and that's going to generate at least soft core corruption, if not hardcore corruption. So we indicted all these cases. I mean, I was scandalized by no-show jobs. I happen to know, just living in Boston and Cambridge, that a lot of people worked for the city or worked for the state and didn't have to show up for work. Uh, because some pal got them this job. And, uh, you know, in certain precincts of Boston, uh, you either get on the state, you get on the city, 
or you join the wise guys, which means uh, yeah. organized crime. If you had nothing going for you, that's the three ways you were going to make a living. So that's really what tilted me towards public corruption. But the deeper I got into it, the more outraged I was. You know, the defenders of the system said this is a victimless crime. And it's true. Nobody had an incentive to report it, either the person paying the bribe or the person taking the bribe. Sure. And that made it more insidious, not less. Right. Okay, and then I, I want to ask you about your time as Assistant Attorney General. At the time, you and the DAG, the Deputy Attorney General, resigned in protest of what you saw as illegal conduct by your boss at the time, then Attorney General Ed Meese. You then testified before Congress, and shortly after that testimony, A.G. Meese resigned. So tell us about that. Why did you do that, and what was it like testifying against the Attorney General? Well, I always call them like I see them, and particularly in Boston, when I was head of the U.S. Attorneys nationwide, before I was head of the Criminal Division, I made it my business to try to keep politics out of law enforcement. And, uh, you know, I think uh, the thing that most motivated me to resign was I saw politics coming into the Justice Department, whose motto is do justice without fear or favor. And I damn well saw favor being done, and I wasn't about to sit around and have people point to me and say, you know, if this is so bad, what's Senor Integridad, me, uh, doing sticking around? So it was that more than any particular peccadillo by uh, the AG that, that led me and Arnie Burns, who was the deputy, to resign, in each case with our top two deputies going with us. Yeah. So uh, this is an interesting transition. Uh, Bill Barr at the Justice Department has been accused by many of politicizing the DOJ. How do you see it from your perspective and from your experience when you ran the criminal division? Well, Bill Barr was a good, strong AG under uh, George Bush 41, and I've known him favorably in the past. He's a very smart guy. There's absolutely no doubt that he's politicizing the Justice Department, uh, and I think he should be in deep water for that. Uh, it started uh, with his uh, characterization of the Mueller report in a way that kind of blunted uh, its impact and made the president's interpretation look good uh, for a few days. Uh, no, it really actually started with his uh, June 2018 unsolicited memo to the Justice Department, informed to the acting De Deputy Attorney General, but intended for the president's eyes that said, by the way, it's impossible to commit obstruction of justice unless uh, the person committing the, uh, the obstruction also committed the underlying offense. Translation, Dick Nixon could never have been impeached or removed for obstruction, as in fact he was, unless he had been the, in the basement of the Watergate Hotel with G. Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt. It's a ludicrous interpretation of the statute. I, I have prosecuted many of those cases. I've supervised many more. I've never seen any support for Bill Barr's interpretation of that statute. More recently, you know, right at the beginning, as soon as uh, the, the, the Trump apologists started saying, well, we need to find out uh, who started this investigation of the president in Russia. Now that Mueller has found the president totally blameless, we need to find out how and why this was started. Now Bill Barr is treating that as a criminal matter. That's very troubling. It's very political. So are there lasting implications for this at DOJ? Do you worry about DOJ as an institution, or is this just one of those times in America where uh, uh, corrupt politicians corrupt the system. No, no. This, if anything in Washington, this, this has lasting impact because it goes to the question of who will guard the guards themselves. And we talk about the rule of law, and it may sound abstract sometimes, but if we don't have uh, a government of laws rather than of men and women, we are in deep trouble. And, you know, I think I, I've spent a lot of time in international business, and I know that everybody all over the world wants to do business with the United States. They want to trade with the United States. They want to come to the United States. And why is that? The number one reason is because they know we have the rule of law and that their property and their life will be protected. So once you drift aside from that and have a government by individuals, which of course is what President Trump wants, we are all in great danger. So let me ask you about one other character uh, in, in this, um, you know, I guess tragic comedy, Rudy Giuliani. Um, 
you certainly were in the uh, justice system with him when he was U.S. attorney uh, in New York. You know him. Um, what, what, I mean, what do you think he's up to, and and what's the danger of someone under the pretense of being a lawyer getting into the political world and the fixing world uh, like Giuliani's done for the president? Well, I'm, I'm loath to say too much about Rudy. He appointed me U.S. attorney and really gave me my start. And I'm here to tell you, when I was in the Justice Department under Ronald Reagan, Rudy Giuliani had the most rat-trap mind of anybody in the department. And he and I helped each other, not only in uh, La Cosa Nostra cases and public corruption cases, but politically. Uh, first, when I was governor, and second, when he became mayor, we campaigned for each other. So we have a long history. Uh, it's, it's fair to say that the Rudy Giuliani uh, of today is not the Rudy Giuliani that I worked with all those years. You said who will guard the guards themselves, and in our constitutional system, oftentimes that's judges. And a lot of folks say that Republicans uh, deal with Trump and, and put up with President Trump because he's been so successful at putting up federal judges. It's all about the judges and the long game. And last time I checked, he, the Senate had confirmed 157 of President Trump's judges. And now you, in particular, what sets you apart from other Republicans is that you are in favor of reproductive rights. You're pro-choice. And as governor, you supported legislation that expanded reproductive rights. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, will you put judges on the federal bench that are pro-choice? Well, it's very likely that most of my judges would be pro-choice just because of my general political philosophy, which is, uh, as I said, to the one time I got to address a Republican National Convention, I said, uh, putting my political philosophy into one sentence, I want the government out of your pocketbook and out of your bedroom. And, you know, that's not to say that everybody has to have my point of view about everything. Uh, I'd say probably 33% of the people who voted to elect me governor in Massachusetts were pro-life on the abortion uh, reproductive rights issue because we didn't, that was not uh, a shibboleth. I wasn't rubbing anybody's nose or anything. By the time you got to the Supreme Court, uh, it's, it's very unlikely that I would appoint a Supreme Court justice who would uh, express sympathy for overturning Roe v. Wade. So let me ask you this then, because even if you do get to appoint justices on the Supreme Court, the current makeup of the court as it is right now, they already have the votes to overturn Roe v. Wade. So what is your response of how you would deal with that? Does that mean adding more justices? Does that mean somehow getting federal legislation through that would actually pass muster? How do you protect a woman's right to choose? Well, you get, you get federal legislation through that would codify Roe v. Wade. So if Roe v. Wade is overturned by the court, the protection still stands legislatively rather than, uh, rather than judicially. So let's turn to the Republican Party. Um, your roots go back to the beginning of the Republican Party. Your family's been involved in uh, the Republican Party for, you know, going back. Uh, I'm not going to claim that I knew Abraham Lincoln, uh, though. But your family knew Abraham Lincoln. Um, what's happened to the party, um, uh, generally? Where, where, did, where did the party lose you? Yeah, I think the venom in Washington really started with the 1994 election. It's gotten a little bit worse ever since because of hyper-gerrymandering. Uh, and then, you know, lack of respect uh, fed on itself. But when I first worked in the Senate for Jack Javits of New York, people not only worked across the aisle, if someone was going to give an important speech, the Senate galleries would be filled with staff members, wives, reporters, people who wanted to hear the speech and, and, and see if they were going to be persuaded by it. Uh, now, if someone's giving a big speech, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and the, the rules of the two chambers require that the television camera not leave the person's face so you can't see that it's the middle of the night and the chamber is deserted because it's purely designed for politics. It's not designed for persuasion. That's a great loss. So, uh, you know, it was not ever thus, put it that way. So it's, I think it's in vogue now for a lot of people, um, you know, the whole never Trump movement to uh, wring their hands over the Republican Party. But you've been worried for a long time. Uh, I, I, we first worked together in 1997 when you were President Clinton's nominee to be ambassador to Mexico. And it became clear during that process 
that you were as interested in trying to force the Republican Party to face some of these issues as you were to being, you know, the ambassador to Mexico. Um, talk a little bit about what you saw and what's happened since then. Well, at that time, there was a tremendous ugliness in the, in the Republican Party. Uh, Senator Helms, uh, may his soul rest in peace, would refer to Mexicans as wetbacks uh, in speeches on the floor of the Senate. I think we've come a little bit uh, of a way since then, except in the Oval Office. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I wanted to see more, uh, more grace in the halls of Congress than, than was there at that time. And when you run the show, it's easy to inculcate it. You know, my first week in office, and nobody knew what to expect from me. I, I was a federal prosecutor, so I was widely feared and suspected in the legislature. And I said to the Senate president and the Speaker of the House, who are both Democrats, why don't we get together for tea and cookies every Monday afternoon? It'll be fun. We can meet first in your office, Mr. Speaker, then you, Mr. President, and then we'll just rotate. At no point did I say, we'll meet in my office. Legislators hate to be summoned. So we did, and it went pretty well, and those sessions were generally just jokes. But the result was it's almost impossible to stab somebody in the back if you're going to be having that kind of meeting with them within seven days. It's almost impossible for them to run to the press and say, this guy is a total jerk. His word is no good. Because if his word was about to be no good, that would be ironed out between jokes in the weekly meeting. And that proved to be such a good experiment that every governor since then up to today has done it. Uh, and, uh, you know, Democrats, Republicans, and same time. Monday afternoon at 3.15 to give me time to finish my squash game before we meet. So th there are elements, and, I, and you know, I underlined elements of Trump supporters, the Republican Party now, who, uh, you know, are, have a backward vision on race issues, white nationalists, there's homophobia, there's uh, an economic protectionism that didn't exist until recently in the Republican Party. How does, how do you personally and your candidacy try to address those and try to broaden out the, the party's appeal again beyond the so-called Trump base? Well, I call the president out for being what he is, which is a Republican in name only. He ain't no Republican. Uh, he's certainly not an economic conservative. He certainly doesn't believe in robust diplomacy and engagement in the world to preserve uh, the peace and all the economic advances that have been made uh, in the last three generations, uh, 75 years, uh, by, the, uh, by the combination of uh, uh, a robust foreign policy, uh, a network of alliances, which are force multipliers when it comes time to keep the sea lanes and the air lanes open for commerce. That's enormously important. It's a, a duty and part of our military, in addition to defending the country and keeping it safe, is to keep the channels of commerce open because everyone in the United States, I think, except the present occupant of the Oval Office, understands that trade is good and free trade is good, and it's particularly good for the United States because we have such a productive uh, workforce. The president has this grade school idea that every, every uh, conversation is a zero-sum game. And if you're not winning, you're losing, so you have to beat up the other guy and take an unreasonable position, try and push him off the playing field. I mean, whenever I met someone like that in business, I just made an immediate mental note never to have anything to do with them again. And the same as whenever I met anyone like that in politics. It's just not done. But the president has not even a child's understanding of the world around us. Uh, I, I belong to a, a group of former world leaders. They're all, except for me, they're all presidents and heads of state, prime ministers. And we get together every year and have a session. What are the great problems of the day that chiefs of state worry about when they're trying to fall asleep at night? Number one every year is nuclear nonproliferation. Just out of interest, number two is religious sectarianism, number three is water, number four is food. Number one is nuclear nonproliferation. The president has such a firm grasp on that topic that he has suggested strongly to Japan and South Korea that they develop their own nuclear programs to flaunt in the face of China and Russia and serve as a deterrent. 
It's been hard enough keeping the nuclear peace with only a handful of nuclear nations. As that number increases, the risk of nuclear war increases geometrically, not arithmetically. But this guy is without a clue. He's without a clue. And we haven't even started talking about hurricanes and how to respond to those yet. But I want to talk about what's going on now. When you first heard about the president's call with the president of Ukraine, President Zelensky, you said that the president had committed treason. And you are a federal prosecutor, a former prosecutor. You choose your words carefully, knowing the possible penalty for treason in this I, I believe I immediately declared the penalty for treason. The one sentence entry in the U.S. Criminal Code is the penalty for treason is death. So let me ask you this. Now that we are a month into this impeachment inquiry on the Ukraine business, do you stand by those comments? Yeah, I do. And it's been pointed out to me that uh, there's another section somewhere else in the code that says you can get 25 years or a fine. But, you know, as I point out, when the federal criminal code says the penalty for the Hobbs Act is 20 years, that's not, that's not the minimum penalty, that's the maximum penalty. And death is the maximum penalty for treason. There are not too many federal offenses that carry the death penalty. And I thought right. it was worth making the point that this is a serious federal criminal violation. In addition, of course, to being an enumerated basis for impeachment and removal under the impeachment clause of the Constitution. So you, you've seen this song and dance before. As we said, you, you were with the House Judiciary Committee during Watergate. What's your assessment? How's this going? How are they doing? I, I think the House is, is doing fine. Uh, you know, I, I hope they keep to just a few articles of impeachment as opposed to 76 of them. Uh, you that know, was my the, next question. The Zelensky, uh, the Zelensky caper uh, from soup to nuts uh, is, is the most flagrant example of an impeachable offense that I can conceive of. So that should be Article 1. Uh, the 10 uh, flagrant examples of obstruction of justice detailed in Volume 2 of the Mueller Report should be Article 2. Uh, pr probably obstruction of the House investigation itself is going to wind up being Article 3, which it was in the Nixon impeachment uh, as well. And beyond that, I mean, it's a, it's a, the Oval Office is a target-rich environment these days. So. But if you want me to write the articles off the, standing on one leg, I'd be happy to oblige. They might recruit you to come back. They're, they're, they're. I keep saying in, uh, on television that if only the president would uh, hire me as his lawyer instead of Rudy Giuliani, I could get him such a deal on an exit scenario, everything but the Congressional Medal of Honor. I could get him parades, flyovers, <laughs> tanks, military, no more bone spur jokes, no more people joking about his family. And honestly, I do wonder some days why the president you know, wants to continue where he is now. He's very surprised to be uh, elected. And it must be getting unpleasant because people are calling him on all his stuff. Uh, and uh, you know, I want to paint a vivid word picture for him of uh, life after politics, where he can go back to burnishing the Trump brand. And what a brand it would be after having been legitimately elected president of the United States, even though it was foreshortened a little bit. And uh, he could be in the company of his loving family and work with them and for their benefit to start a new uh, news network that would snuff out a certain network that's now operating. Uh, and uh, he could just have a wonderful life. I, w I wish he would take you up on your offer. I, I don't want to blow by uh, the Mueller investigation. You mentioned obstruction, but I want to get your thoughts on the first part, the first volume, which is Russian interference. The president's um, idea that it's okay for foreign governments to try to influence uh, our elections, and also the authoritarian bias he seems to have. He seems to want to hang around with Putin and Erdogan and Kim. How, how much of a challenge is his presidency to our democracy? Oh, I think the president is a clear and present danger to our democracy and to our national security. And in the national security area, everything the president tries to do is tilted to further aggrandize uh, uh, the, the ruler of Russia. And, uh, you know, what he did recently in Syria redounds to the credit of uh, Russia and Iran. What he's doing with Zelensky, 
uh, you know, the reason Zelensky needed the $400 million of military assistance is because he's in a hot war with Russia. And so Russia is the closest thing we have to an enemy. And uh, certainly by withholding aid from Ukraine, Mr. Trump was giving aid and comfort to Russia. And he wants to bring Russia back into the G7. He's helping them in the Middle East. He's helping them in Eastern Europe or Ukraine. Ukraine is not a NATO ally, but they're a key EU participant and a bridge to Eastern Europe. And Putin has made no secret of the fact that he wants to put the pressure on Eastern Europe and bring them back into the fold. All of Eastern Europe and the Baltics stand at risk, and one of the first things I would do is go to Belarus and say, do not cooperate with this guy against the Baltics uh, or they're gone. So it is a realistic possibility that the president will run in the next election and he'll win the next election. Do you, how deep is your concern about a second term of Trump as far as America's standing in the world and our future? I think it would bode ill for us. Uh, one thing it would engender certainly is the disappearance of the Republican Party because if he runs and is reelected, that means the Republicans would certainly lose the Senate. The president has no fondness for any legislators, including Republicans in the Senate, and right now he's trying to get them all to walk the plank for him. Uh, I'm not sure they're going to go quietly because you know, secretly, they have no love for him either, and they know what kind of a guy he is. They just don't want to get picked off one by one. So I'm innocently suggesting these days, well, Leader McConnell plays the long game and he plays the deep game. Those are both true facts. And maybe he'd want to know because he, he cares about his caucus. And, uh, you know, I was in Washington as a senior Republican when we, the Republican Party, lost the Senate in 86. And it makes a huge difference from ruling the world. Suddenly you can't schedule a hearing. Joe, I'm sure you've been on both sides of that trade. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm sure that Mitch McConnell wouldn't want that to happen. So my innocent suggestion is he might just want to, at some point, take an informal straw poll of his members. You know, <laughs> leaders take straw polls all the time. And so that nobody has to go first, maybe everybody should just write down, remove, uh, don't remove, a little piece of paper. Anonymously, right? That, it would be anonymous, would... and they'd push the little pieces of paper across the table, and Mitch would pick them up and read them. And if there were 20 or more of them, guess what? They're going to take that vote and they're going to remove that president. So let's shift uh, as we finish up to your campaign. What's your strategy to get the nomination? Strategy really is to win New Hampshire. I think you know getting over 40% would pass as a win, certainly an unexpected outcome. But it's to win New Hampshire, which ordinarily would be a fatal blow for any president. It's never happened, by the way. All of these uh, heroic people who primaried sitting presidents and then they lost, none of them won the New Hampshire primary. But uh, if I can move 28 points in one month, uh, you know, I can move 56 points in four months for sure. So I think that could happen. The next stop is Super Tuesday, which features Massachusetts, Vermont, Wisconsin, Virginia, and California, all of which I think I can put in play. If I win three, four states on Super Tuesday, I think the president is on rocky ground there. Certainly the New Hampshire primary casts a long shadow. I mean, if I win the New Hampshire primary, except that my good friend Mark Sanford is already there, I could go to South Carolina as a credible candidate because of the momentum. So in terms of areas of the country, it's the six New England states, then the five mid-Atlantic states, then California, Oregon, Washington, then uh, targets of opportunity in the West where I've spent a lot of time, Colorado, New Mexico. And then the last port of call is uh, the Rust Belt states that gave Mr. Trump uh, the, the election last time. And I'm not without my networks in Pennsylvania and uh, Wisconsin and Michigan. And if for some reason it doesn't go your way, are you going to support the Democratic nominee? It's possible I could support uh, a, a Democrat, uh, depending, uh, depending who it is, or I could support a Libertarian or, or the new Liberty Party or Unity Party springing up from the ashes of the Republican Party. So we're going to take some questions from the audience and you go up to the mic. Let me ask you a quick question while someone's coming up. How do you define a win here? Is it, is it just getting the nomination or do you think you can do some things for the Republicans no, by just running? Well, no, I think I could do some things for the country if I get in office by bringing 
bipartisanship back to Washington, you know, dealing with uh, the 20% of our jobs we're going to lose in 10 years because of AI and robotics and driverless cars, which no one's thinking about, and I have a detailed program on that. Rejoining the Paris Accord, I have a detailed program, which is not a boast about how much money I'm going to spend. It's a specific plan to put a price on carbon to get carbon out of the atmosphere, which is what we need to do. No one's doing any of these things in Washington because they require real analysis, understanding of the issues, and work. And those are three things that I like, but the fellow in the Oval Office right now, he doesn't care for them. I also liked your 28th Amendment suggestion overruling getting rid of Citizens United. So we'll, we'll hold you to that one. That was Absolutely. one of the earlier suggestions. We are going to give our guest audience an opportunity to ask questions now. Good afternoon. Uh, my question refers back to Trump and Putin and the connection, the obvious connection there. Do you have an opinion as to whether or not, because I can't figure out, is he an unwitting stooge or is he a witting stooge? Oh, I think he's doing it on purpose. I think he knows uh, what he's doing. You know, occasionally I think, is this guy an, an idiot savant who doesn't know what he's doing but is just has a political genius? But no, I mean, he, it's all of a piece. He wants to bring Russia back into the G7. If it was just that, I'd let it go. He wants to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. If it was just that, I'd let it go. He took a lot of heat for wanting to build a Trump Tower in Moscow, so maybe that helped uh, the, the whole plan gel in his mind. But the piece de resistance here is he has Ambassador Kislyak and Foreign Minister Lavrov into the Oval Office for a private conversation is it covered by the press? Yes. Is it the American press? No. The only press allowed in the Oval Office, if you please, is TASS, the state organ of Moscow. That, that's as clear a screw you indicator as I can think of. I'm going to do it my way, and my way is the Russia way, he's thinking. I, and just a quick follow-up, why? I mean, why would he be doing this? And then I'll... Thank you. I don't know, orneriness or just, I mean, I would say the guy has no sense of right and wrong, except I think he does have a sense of wrong. Uh, he, he goes unerringly to the wrong thing, does it, and then doubles down on it. And it may be just an example of that. Thank you for the question. So pivoting off of that a little bit, um, if you were elected president, how would you handle things like NASA and space exploration and space commercialization? Oh, I'm a huge fan of space exploration. I loved when we had the joint stations with the Soviets, because then you're, you and the Russians are standing together looking in the same direction instead of looking at each other. So I'd be very bullish on NASA and space explora uh, exploration, which I think the president is as well. So score one. <laughs> Thank you. With polls showing the support for President Trump on the, on the Republican side between 80 and 90 percent, or 94 if you believe President Trump's numbers. The three candidates, the three Republican presidential candidates who are here today, are you in this race to make a statement to try to, to, try to support the Republican Party in some way, or are you actually mounting a serious attempt at becoming president? No, I, I'm in it to become president of the United States, and I have a lot of things, as I was saying, that I want to do, and I believe I've enumerated them, and I have policy statements uh, out on them. And, you know, I like to work. I have a very different style than the president. I'm calm, relaxed person. I'm comfortable in my own skin. Uh, I don't think he is. So I think I could do a lot for the country by bringing a bipartisan approach to Washington. I would have a bipartisan cabinet uh, and... Uh, you know, be judicious in my Supreme Court appointment. So I think I could do everything he's done uh, and, and more. In terms of how do we get there, it's, as I said, it's uh, uh, win or play strongly in the New Hampshire primary, then win three or four states in Super Tuesday. And those are political acts that have consequences. They're almost like a judicial decision. So that could send me on my way so that the other places still to come uh, New York State, for example, uh, you know, if you win those primaries, ping, 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 suddenly there aren't enough votes left for Mr. Trump. Hi, welcome to Nashville. Um, Thank you. I hope we've treated you fair. Um, here in Nashville, we have 10 care 
versus uh, versus Medicare. So as if elected, I'm a Democrat that has voted uh, for a Republican once before. But if elected, what would you do about uh, health care uh, or health care expansion or health care in general? Uh, as that's one question that Donald Trump has not uh, asked for, you know, has, he's pivoted away from that. And that's not being clearly, um, I guess, clarified in the Democratic debate. So what can you do about health care in general? But one thing I would not do is try to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which added 20 million people to the people to the roles of the insured. That's an enormous advance for the cost of health care. Two things you want to do with a national approach to health care is one, lower cost, two, preserve quality of care. Uh, the one modification I would have in mind is to reduce the really dominant role of government in the current system of health care. And there's a lot of rules in there that don't make uh, intuitive sense to me. Everyone's got to have the same plan. Why? People make different choices all the time for how much insurance they want to have on their house or anything else. Uh, I think people should be able to store up money on a tax advantage basis into health savings accounts for their own benefit. And that's them making that decision. The government is helping by having this be tax free when you put the money, but it's just like a retirement account. And then if you do have an exigent circumstance or an emergency in the healthcare area in your family, you would have a nest egg stored up. Not to say you wouldn't also have, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, whatever, but you'd have that extra, extra nest egg. Uh, the current laws, you cannot buy prescription drugs from Canada. Why? The current laws, you cannot buy uh, health insurance across state lines. Why? These things really don't make sense. But in terms of a frontal assault on the Affordable Care Act, no. We got to maintain pre-existing condition. Uh, we got to maintain the advances that that act engendered. Thank you. Go ahead. Hi. So you mentioned uh, you know corruption and we know that permeates you know all aspects of government and uh, you just recently touched on the 28th amendment and uh, campaign finance reform so i want to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on campaign finance reform and how we go about um, you know fixing some of these and and um, what do you feel about the 28th amendment and how we accomplish that well you and by the way in getting rid of um Citizens United, which was decided on constitutional grounds by the court, which is why a, a constitutional amendment is uh, needed. I would either do the 28th Amendment, the proposed 28th Amendment, which is the next one in line, which is a ratification by three quarters of the states, or there's another way to get a constitutional amendment under uh, Article 5 of the Constitution. You call a constitutional convention, the risk is then it gets extended to other topics. But I've, I've advocated that in the past to get term limits in there. I was national chair of U.S. term limits, and I think that's worth a constitutional convention as well, because then you don't have to go through Congress, and Congress itself is never going to vote for term limits. So either of those two routes, and in a word, it's to get the unlimited dark money out of politics. What about term limits for judges? Negative. Uh, hey. <laughs> Uh, what political issue are you most vehement about, and what policies would you implement regarding that issue? What political issue about what? Are you most vehement about? Oh my goodness. Uh, I think it's probably climate change, because that's, that's a problem for the planet. Uh, and my policies would be to put a price on carbon, uh, and then uh, it, it's not a tax, because the government would refund that money. Uh, either by uh, to, through the payroll tax uh, or uh, by uh, just giving it back to the taxpayers, and that would automatically achieve the goal. Hi, Governor. Uh, I'm Howard. I'm with Common Ally. I'm curious, what's your message to young voters and first-time voters, and what's your campaign going to do to get them to show up and vote? My message to young voters is uh, you should pay attention to what we say about those trillion dollar deficits because they're going to park the hearse at your door and you're never going to see social security benefits if that persists. It's a tax on your generation and an unfair tax. And you could say the same about climate change because my generation's not going to see uh, those coastlines disappear, but yours sure is. And uh, probably the more intrusive impact of the polar ice cap melting isn't even uh, the, the, the fact that uh, we'll have you know rearrangement of the coastlines, it's the weather. The weather is going to get just astronomically worse than it's been to this point, and, and storms killing thousands all the, all the time. And uh, we've already seen 
a flare-up of extreme weather. I guess in Tennessee and Kentucky, I lived in Louisville for six months, and they're proud of their severe weather there. But we wouldn't be proud of what climate change would, uh, would bring. Great. Thank you. Good afternoon, Governor. Um, I want to touch base with you on um, sexual assault, particularly on college campuses, and um, safety for students at all levels, K through college. Um, what are some of the things that you would propose to make um, private schools, public schools, colleges and universities safer for students, and at the college level particularly for women? So I made it a priority of my administration to deal with uh, the problem of domestic abuse. One thing I did in the criminal justice area was to commute the sentences of eight women who had been imprisoned for murder or manslaughter as a result of killing their husbands or boyfriends who were in the act of trying to kill them. And I and my legal counsel officially recognized the defense of battered women's syndrome, which is kind of like a distant cousin of PTSD. Uh, and uh, so, and then we gave all the judges training in that because as a young lawyer, I sat in the back of the courtroom Monday mornings and, the, and there would be a parade of women who were absolutely black and blue or worse than that coming in saying, my boyfriend, my husband beat me to a pulp. And the judge would lean down into the well of the courtroom and say, uh, sweetheart, what did you do on Saturday night so to irritate your husband or your boyfriend? And this tore me up. So we had these classes for the judges that they had to take to learn about domestic abuse and domestic violence, and the same could be done for educational institutes of uh, violence. That was a condition of them remaining judges, and I had it taught by the police, and the judges just were torn apart by that because they don't like being lectured to by police. But uh, we made it stick, and uh, I think Massachusetts was known as a leader in the, the fight against domestic abuse and, and uh, sexual violence during my term. Thank you, Governor. Hi. It would uh, appear that all these uh, Republican senators are afraid of Trump and afraid of being primaried, uh, which I guess is determined by the state Republican Party and you have these state Republican parties that aren't going to have uh, primaries for you and your friends there. So why are they doing that? The question is, why are the Republican senators so scared of being primaried, uh, you know, if they don't toe the line for Trump? I guess they think that Trump can get someone to come in and primary them. And let's not forget that the state parties are creatures of Trump. He, he appointed them, and if he says, you know, he even tried to abolish the New Hampshire primary this year, and that didn't go over too well in New Hampshire, because they understand that half of their clout as a state comes from having the first in the nation primary. So I like to say that the voters of New Hampshire were the first ones to stand up against Mr. Trump uh, this year. Uh, but, uh, you know, the solution for that is, as I suggested earlier, one way or the other, a secret ballot of the Republicans uh, in uh, the Senate as to whether they want to remove the president. And if there's a critical mass, and as I read the tea leaves yesterday, there's already eight. They need 20 uh, critical mass. And this is one of these things like on the other side of the football, support for gay marriage, which was going nowhere for a long time. And then suddenly it accelerated and it got here before, uh, before we thought. Uh, the first black president, nothing for a long time, and suddenly the magic ingredient is there and it accelerates. And I think if that happens, you know, as I look at the world, the only way for us to breathe a sigh of relief is for the president to be removed under the impeachment clause by the Senate. Because if that happens, he has no recourse. He can't try to stage a comeback because the other part of the impeachment clause in the Constitution says, if you're removed, you can never hold any office of profit or honor under the laws of the United States again, ever. So, you know, it wouldn't be a pretty picture for him with no possibility of a political comeback and all these criminal cases still left over. And by the way, the power, the presidential pardon of, uh, the presidential power of pardon under the Constitution does not extend to cases of impeachment. Good afternoon, and thank you for uh, taking questions. My question is about North Korea. Um, it seems as if, even though the Trump administration has met with um, leadership of North Korea, it seems to be um, 
a process that's kind of in disarray. And I, I believe from what I see in the media that, in fact, North Korea has continued to proliferate. They have continued to proliferate their nuclear stance. So I wonder if you have a different point of view in terms of how you would approach. Yeah, the question is what about uh, North Korea and their nuclear program? You know, I think if you could do it, it'd be a very handy idea to try to bring China to the table there, uh, perhaps at a sidebar of our trade conferences with them. But, you know, Xi Jinping, when he came to power in China, said of the United States, we have a thousand reasons to be friends. I know what he means. We have a thousand touch points. North Korea is one of them. There's a lot of U.S. missiles in South Korea pointed directly at North Korea from a distance of just a few miles. And you know who's right behind North Korea. China is. So they don't like that. So I can see a four-way conversation. Wouldn't it be handy if uh, you know, there were some adjustments south of the border in return you, China, could use your muscle with North Korea to get them to abandon this poppycock idea of a nuclear weapons program? Someone's gonna squash them pretty soon if they do develop such a program. And the ice cream that they would get in return would be tremendous economic uh, development. And that could be a four-way deal that would benefit everybody. Thank you very much. So thank you all for all of your questions, Governor Weld. I, I just wanted to finish by saying that, you know, we've both been around a long time, and the Republican Party, as I knew it when, when I was competing in campaigns, is not the Republican Party we have now. Uh, and ultimately, there's, there's a real reason why I think your point of view and the Republican Party, as you envision it, should win because it's good for the country. Having a strong Republican Party and a strong Democratic Party that can work together is is how we got to where we are. And um, we we so much appreciate you coming, spending some time with us. Thank you so much. Thanks everyone for joining us for this special live edition of Words Matter. Once again, you can download Words Matter with Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.